Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem, and happy holidays. Closing down on Feliz Navidad here, and hope you're all having a good one. I've got a great and very different show for you today with a, a guest whose resume is just unbelievable and not a paraglider, so very different. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Stay tuned for that. I get a couple bits of housekeeping before we get to it. The first is insurance. I understand a lot of people utilize my article on insurance that I try to keep really up to date on the website. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com and just put the search term in insurance, the, the article is called Unscrambling Insurance. And I've just recently updated that again as Geos is not going to offer most of their policies in terms of uh, getting you home if you have an accident or repatriation and a lot of other things. They're only going to still provide the high risk benefit in case you hit your SOS on your spot or your inReach and they were kind of a one-stop shop there. So now you really have to go back to another, you need kind of three different things. You need the, the insurance in case you hit your SOS, which you can get still get through Geos and then you need uh, Repatriation insurance, what I suggest is through Global Rescue. There are a couple others like MedJet. And then you need a really good uh, travel insurance that covers medical in country in case you get hurt and you got to have surgery or something before you get home. So three different things. There are others out there that are not in the article, but these are the ones I really know of and I've done a lot of study on them and I know they work and I've had many friends that have had to utilize them, unfortunately. and nobody's had any trouble. So check that out. If you're traveling, I know a lot of people are getting ready to travel this winter for various flying escapades and don't go uncovered. Don't think it's not going to happen to you. Uh, it can put your family or your friends or our community in big bind if you have an accident and you're not covered properly. So check that out. Second thing is I usually have this at the end of every show just about contributing, but we've been putting out a lot of bonus content lately and that's for subscribers, but we don't put anything ever behind a paywall. I kind of figure that everything we're doing here is a public service announcement and we're just trying to help our community and help everybody get better and fly better and fly more safely. So that's the purpose. And so that's why I don't have anything behind a paywall. But for those of you who do support the show, obviously we really appreciate it. There are a ton of costs here and a lot of time and editing and doing the interviews and all that. So. If you can, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. We really appreciate it. And there are various ways to do so. They're all spelled out on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com. And I know I've sent you back and forth on this a few times, but for those of you who especially contribute just, you know, a, a dollar show, which is great, uh, that if you do it through the website or through PayPal, that kind of thing, they take a lot of fees there and it's better. I've learned now through patreon.com forward slash cloud mayhem. And you can find that link on the website. They're the best in terms of fees and they can also set it up so you can just calculate it out for the number of shows per year and pay it in one go. And then the fees are a fraction of what they are if you just do it $1, $1, $1. So all that's on the website. Again, we really appreciate it. If you can't afford to uh, support the show, send me an email. I'll get you all set up with a lifetime account. You can always access all the content we put out uh, whenever you want. So thank you. All right. My guest today, Peter Zaccarino. He is, when I Googled him initially, it came up as actor. and But he is 
everything. He's a philanthropist. He's basically a, common, a modern day Chuck Yeager. Uh, he's flown over 23,000 hours in more than 250, 270 aircrafts. He's flight tested over 685. He's built his own airplanes. He's been around the world a bunch of times on private airplanes. And he's a four times air racing gold champion. He's in the Aviation Hall of Fame. Uh, this guy has done it all. He's been at gunpoint in Pakistan. He's been to every country but one. And I think you'll be surprised on the one that he hasn't been to. Anyway, had a blast with this, really fun. Oh, and he's also an author. He's doing a whole series of books. His first two are out. First one is Relevant, and the second one is The New Cold War. And these are kind of uh, military fiction spy novels that are doing really well, and people love them, and super exciting stuff. So we talk about his documentary filmmaking, and Bush Plains up in Alaska, and he was part of a big discovery series called The Most Dangerous... I don't have that in front of me, but he's... Yeah, the most dangerous flight series. So, yeah, incredibly productive person and has had a very, very interesting life and he's not slowing down. So we really enjoyed, we had a blast with this. It was super fun. I think you're going to enjoy it as well. A lot of great takeaways. Happy holidays, everybody, and enjoy this talk with Peter Zaccarino. Peter, this is very cool, man. We didn't uh, meet in a traditional way, but welcome to the mayhem. And I'm really excited to talk to somebody who's had a very different resume and life than I typically talk to. I, we, I talk to a lot of people that take a lot of risk uh, in free flight, but it sounds like you've taken some pretty big moves in jet airplanes and the powered side of things. And you've got some... Uh, fantastic stories that I can't wait to get in. But where I thought we'd start is uh, close your eyes for a second and imagine you're at a party where no one, surprisingly, no one knows you. And they say, hey, Pete, uh, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? How do you answer that question? Because, you know, when I when I, when I I Googled you, it came up that you're uh, an actor. But <laughs> <laughs> I've done a little Discovery Channel work too. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, I guess, Google has algorithms because I really, a, a big compliment I got a few years ago was someone I was working with said, you know, I Googled you. It was really fun to Google you. And I was like, wow, that's a heck of a nice thing to say, I guess. That's a good compliment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, I really, I dug it. It was cool. Um, but how do wow. you answer that question? I mean, my gosh, your resume is impressive. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I definitely pursue the adventure. I, I when I'm giving a talk somewhere and they're like, okay, my concern always is, well, adventure means you got to do something that's scary, right? And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, an adventure could be just you've never played chess before and you're going to chess camp for a month, mm, you know, because that's yeah. an adventure, right? Sure. You're challenging your brain. You're doing something you haven't done. You're getting uncomfortable. You know, you're going to look bad in front of people and all those risks. But yeah, I, I really just pursued the adventure. It's, um, you know, I want to get out and see the world. Um, that was a motivator. I love to learn. I love to teach. I'm, I'm always teaching at some capacity. I never get away from teaching, whether it was at a college I taught at or, you know, teaching some flying aspect or whatever. Um, and you kind of put that all together into this Venn diagram where you have all this overlap. And I look at that overlap and that's that overlap is me. You know, it's it's the adventure. It's all things flying. I'd like to try some of your flying that I haven't done. I've done some other free flying, but uh it it's just adds into the adventure and and the challenge and 
I'm a big believer. Anything you learn helps everything. I mean, it just helps everything. Whatever you're learning is going to help some capacity, right? Mm. And uh, so that's kind of the short answer. (laughs) So you would, so if somebody came up, you would say, yeah, I'm I'm an adventurer. That's the, that's the number one thing. Or would it be, you know, are you a racer? Are you a a test pilot? Uh, Could you give me a single one answer? Uh, Renaissance. Ah, that's probably the best single word answer. I mean, it's definitely all things aviation, right? You know, sure. test flying, the racing, uh, traveling the world, taking customers around the world and really lighten up their, their daily grind a little bit. It's definitely all things aviation, but I really, the whole Renaissance concept to me philosophically aligns with my like ideals and I'm a pretty ideological person, probably to a fault actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And that's why I, I got into the writing. It was, it's really hard for me because I'm an engineer. Uh, by study and by practice that parlayed into my test flying as an aeronautical engineer. And so I write like an engineer. The door is open. Go through the door. What's so hard about that, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. You know, and it was really hard to write for me, but I really enjoyed the process. And um, so, yeah, you know, all things flying for sure. Um, taking some uh, personal risks, you know. Yeah. Mm. So author, pilot. Uh, and you're, you're kind of aviation expert. I mean, you've flown over 23 in your bio, you probably got more hours now, but you've flown over 23,000 hours and more than 270 aircraft, um, flight tested over. I mean, you're, you're Chuck Yeager, man. (laughs) (laughs) I used to harass Chuck Yeager actually. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I, I, I fly, all things as I can get my hands on. If you let me fly a paraglider, I'll be there, you know? <laughs> nice. We can arrange that. All right. I'll take you up on that. I really will too. You know? Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you're in a good part of the world for it. You know, living in the Wasatch there, you know, just on the other side is one of the greatest places to learn in the country. And then, you know, you can get up in the big mountains that right after that. So yeah, for sure. We'll do it. Cool. Your new book uh, just came out. We were we wanted. I wanted to start off talking with your first one. You and I both okay. published our first book in 2020. Uh, mine was all about paragliding, and yours was fictional military. And hats off, I, you know, is is this fiction? I think is much harder to write than nonfiction. Is, is it typical fiction? And that you know, this really was much of it is based on your own life and experience, and you just you know, got a little whimsical or how did, how did it, how did it work writing it? Yeah. Um, the first book relevant has a lot of, uh, factual stories in it, Okay, but I put it, I put it into a narrative so that it was as readable as my skill levels allowed basically, and made it into a story that would allow me to continue the story into book two, book three. And I've outlined five books for the series. Wow. uh, what, long as people buy them, I'll keep writing them. And uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of um, real life story based stuff in, in relevant. Less, uh, probably about 50% of the second book, about half of it is real stories. And like in the first book, everybody thought I was picking on my brother, and, and he's not my brother. I mean, there was no representation of him being my brother, but everybody's like, well, you know, Pete was raised by a single mom and has one brother. And I use that context and they're like, God, you were mean to your brother in the book. It's like, 
I was like, that's not my brother. The, the, it's just backstory, you know? <laughs> right. But, um, so yeah. And, and, you know, I've lived around the world in a lot of different places. So I, I drew in a lot of those experiences and some close calls and being detained in Nigeria and, you know, roadblocks in Pakistan, stuff like that. It helped. Was that all, uh, was that all military? No, uh, just, boy, um, how do you answer that? No, not military. I'm not prior military. just to be setting the record straight and clear. I just did a lot of different jobs and flight tests and some other types of work. And it had me in a lot of strange places, you know, over the years and got to see some, how we politely describe it, unique things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unique things. I'll say it that way. Yeah, I spent a bunch of time sailing around the world, uh, two circumnavigations. There were a few times we went into places that I would describe for sure as unique. Yeah, you, you know, <laughs> it's nothing like you see on the major news outlets, is it? No, <laughs> no, no, definitely. Yeah. Let's rewind way back. You, tell me about your family a little bit. How did you become an adventurer? Where did that spark? Where did it hit? I give a lot of credit to my mom. I was raised by a single mom, raising two obnoxious kids in New Jersey. And uh, she really instilled a sense of confidence and a a just go get after it, whatever that is. Again, it doesn't have to be scary stuff. It can be whatever. Just get after it. And um, my mom was awesome in that spirit, I, I think is the best way. And, and definitely out of the box, you know, not um, – doing things that are kind of the standard and nothing wrong with that. Hey, I could have been on a standard career path and that would have been great. But she definitely said, you know, whatever you're doing is going to be great as long as you're enjoying it. And, and it helps other people. It's good for other people. It motivates other people, you know, just be that person. And, you know, we all stumble and fall, but get up, fix it, own it, be accountable and keep going after it. And I got a lot of that from my mom and, um, Hmm. You know, it was just growing up, it was my mom, my brother, and I. I'm the youngest. And, uh, you know, my brother was uh, always pounding on me until I got old enough I could pound back. And, you know, that was a big <laughs> part of it. And he's a great supporter as well. My brother's awesome. Is he also a pilot? No, I'm the only pilot, engineer, crazy guy in the family. No one else, hmm. you know, has any flying in, in my family. And how did the aviation, It was it engineering and then aviation or aviation and then engineering? No, I mean, uh, a lot of my life was in parallel is the best way to describe it. If I did it in series, I'd be, you know, 120 and, um, and I can get away without a lot of sleep usually, not always, but usually. And, Mm. uh, so I, I did my undergrad in aeronautical engineering and, uh, to come back to your primary question though, I I don't really have a good answer. I just Mm. wanted to, I wanted to design, build and fly airplanes since I can remember. And um, I had an older brother, Mike, who passed away when I was pretty young. But we would go do the classic, you know, three-year-old thing where I'd run around the house with a toy airplane making it fly, right? And uh, he was pretty awesome about that. But it's really the only thing I can point to in my aviation drive. And um, But again, since I was walking, it was design, build, and fly airplanes. I'm like, so I think I have to become an engineer. I think I have to become a pilot. And I think I have to become, you know, a repairman. For aircraft. So I did my engineering degree in Florida, a uh, great school, really happy with that. While I was doing that, as the poor kid from Jersey, I was getting flight lessons. I had some grants and, you know, stealing money, borrowing this, that, whatever it took. And uh, 
And then uh, that was a joke, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, what are you, a bank robber too? Yeah, it doesn't, right. doesn't say that on the bio. <laughs> I, I cannot confirm or deny. No. Uh, but what but flying in, during my engineering program did for me was I, I got enough of the pilot licenses very quickly so that I could start making money doing it. Okay. And my first thing I did while I was my, uh, late in my freshman year, I, I started flying skydivers. And so they, I went down to this place. The owner was this classic grumpy guy and piece of garbage airplane. And I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, this plane's awesome. I get to fly and he's paying me $3.10, you know. <laughs> but the whole deal was every time I took a load of skydiver, skydivers up in this little plane, I got paid per load. So I was pretty motivated to get people into the airplanes. And, and the owner loved it because I would go around and be like, hey, aren't you ready to jump? Let's go. Cause I wanted the flight time and the money. And so I would pile them in the plane and do as many loads as I could in the, you know, the time I had between school and college and everything. And uh, it was awesome. So I was, I was making way more than flipping burgers. Plus mm. I was getting flight time, which is everything for pilots. You know, you need, you need that valuable flight time to advance your career. And, and it kind of worked and, you know, it rolled into becoming an instructor and it was basically, I became an instructor when I had enough money to do that and find planes and people to teach and got me into aerobatics. And I knew I wanted to be a test pilot. I was like, well, I better go, you know, chasing after people to fly goofy airplanes. You know, it's kind of my little phrase, the goofy airplanes. <laughs> and, uh, Why did you know you wanted to be a test pilot? Because I, I, I really like what it embodies. It embodies the technical academic engineering part. Mm. Um high level of accountability you're responsible for a prototype that a company is banking a, a ton of money on and um uh and of course you know advanced piloting skills you're you can't be you can't suck you know you, you've mm. got to deliver and when emergencies happen kind of zen-like is how i describe it it's not a adrenaline thing for me at all it's very zen-like and you know you gotta adapt to the emergency make it work survival's first safety second aircraft safety third and um uh and then you get to fly really high-tech planes and work with super smart people and it just was very appealing to me and hmm. so i chased after it and uh when i was told no i asked why and i learned that skill of asking why early on you know and uh, i just kept chasing it until it kind of worked out and um wow so here I am. <laughs> and you've done, but you've done all the hours. I mean, typically for, and I don't know anything about powered aviation. So to, correct me if I'm wrong, but sure. typically someone who's gone down your, you don't have a path. It, just, it sounds <laughs> very, it's very adventurous, but so for somebody that's, that goes into test flying and that kind of hours is usually done with military. And so you've, you've yeah. been able to do all this kind of on your own gumption. Sounds like. Yeah, the military, it, when I've flown with military contracts and jobs, most people thought I was a military pilot. So your assessment okay. is absolutely correct. I was the uh, abnormal one. And, you know, we're in flight suits and survival gear and all that stuff. And so it looks very military and okay. for good reasons. I mean, they have great gear. That's just the truth. It's very safe, sure. very good quality. Uh, and I was flying some military aircraft. So uh, absolutely, that was a likely avenue but 
what I did, there was a couple things that happened. Being an aeronautical engineer, I don't think I could have pursued my um, flight test route early on without being an aeronautical engineer. I think that was one of those bridging things hmm. um, compared to my peers that were military and went to test pilot school and things like that. That was definitely a big one. The other one, I had a really big break. I had a customer that's a large aircraft manufacturer, starts with a B based in the Northwest, uh, you know, and they put their trust in me on a pretty cool project and it went really well. And when the Air Force got involved, I had to go and get prerequisite Air Force training and they were like apologizing to me because I, we paused the program. We're in the middle of an SRB, a safety review board. They're like, uh, he can't fly until he has the prerequisites. And the guy in charge was like, he's the only guy who's flown it till now. You know, what do you mean he can't fly it? So it was just politics. Wow. They, yeah, it was awesome because they went and sent me off to various um, prerequisite training after the fact. And it just added to the resume, you know, especially early on. And now my, my dossier was getting fatter and thicker. And they, they kept apologizing. Oh, you got, now you got to do this. Now you got to go to McCord Air Force Base and, you know, et cetera. And that was one of those breaks or building moments. Um, and then I started testing some small planes. That was a, another kind of... Um, turn in the in the path and um that opened up into the air racing um i started working for this company again it's all on contract so we come and go all the time but the small company was making these really fast airplanes and a lot of people were racing them and i was like wow that sounds like a great idea what could go wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> so that's how you got into racing was testing these yeah. planes for the company that makes them yeah, and and it's it's a just a you know enthusiast airplane that goes really fast, made of carbon fiber, and well, in some cases fiberglass too. But um, is this the Red Bull Air Race type plane? No, this is the Pylon Racing that is really high speed. So we're all about speed. And okay. Our track, just to keep the story from getting too long, is about an eight mile circumference. It's not a circle, but it's also not an oval. It's kind of a blob a roundish yep. blob yeah. shape and um and what the pylons look like they're not but they look like a telephone pole sticking in the desert with a can on top and, it, okay. and and then they're painted and and they mark the courses that we're on and uh off you go and so i, I because i was flying that type of plane called a lance air um i got a call from this guy rick who's now one of my best friends i don't know this is like hmm 18 years ago, I think something like that. And he's like, Hey, you know how to fly a four P I'm like, sure. And he's like, can you be our pace pilot? I was like, when September, I'm like, can you come to the championship air races? I'm like, great, let's go. <laughs> right. So I flew that plane as pace and, um, I was like, Oh yeah, I'll be here next year racing. There is no questions about it. And uh, that's how it got started. And you had quite a bit of success there. Yeah. Um, um, uh, you, you, couple it was a goal i don't i don't know how this works is it is this a circuit that's all over the world it, you know do you do a lot of traveling for it do you ship in airplanes or is it mostly in the states or well it is it's such a tough sport because it it's gone all over the place we've had races in foreign countries we've raced in portugal we've had races in china um it used to be a circuit and for whatever reason, when there's an aviation fatality, it has such a different perspective on it than if car racing has a fatality. I don't know why. It's just, it is what it is. But um, 
and there was a fatality a long time ago and it really changed races. And, um, and then we had another one in 2011 that almost ended racing. So I'm giving you a longer answer, but it's the championships have always been at Reno in September. There's been other races, depends on the year, depends when you ask. It's, it's been unfortunately inconsistent. It used to be mm. very consistent. Mm. And, um, but it's hard. I mean, it's the fastest sport in the world, right? By far. I mean, my fastest lap was 560 in 2019, you know, 560 miles an hour. There's no sport that touches us in speed. And, but it doesn't get the exposure you would think it would get, right? Huh. And I mean, look at someone flying a paraglider around the world. It doesn't get the exposure it should no. get. Well, geez, not even close when it comes to that. But is that. But yeah, I mean, it's cool stuff, but for, I don't know why it, currently is a little bit on the downside i guess is the best way to put it is that how you got into the aviation hall of fame what or is that just everything um, is that is that at yeah, all coupled together but i didn't even know i was nominated they told me i was nominated one year and i didn't get in unbeknownst to me but when i the year i got in and they called me up to kind of interview me i got past that first barrier and they were interviewing. It, it was really a lot of things. It was, you know, from the charitable work, um, the lecturing I do uh, pro bono just to try and mentor people. They're looking for well-rounded aviators, I think. Okay. And the racing, you know, winning at the championship and um, setting records. I, I've set a bunch of records over the years. I don't even know which ones stand anymore, but um, that all... It all just fed into it, I think, is the best way to put it. What kind of records? Speed records or what? Yeah, I did a couple, um, like crossing the Atlantic, uh, set a, for mm. example, a speed record. Sometimes I've done some pretty funny city pairs. I say funny because there's these city pair records, and they're not that hard to do, but they're funny because you can get this silly plane that is just used for training, and we kind of made a parody of it and uh, a joke about it. And So I did this record in Florida. and you know, It's a city pair record from... You know, St. Pete, Florida to Daytona Beach in this 100-mile-an-hour airplane, you know. And uh, so there was some of that and some course uh, leadership stuff, things huh. like that. Let me ask you what's, I'm sure, a ridiculous question for in the powered world. But again, I don't know anything. I've, I've never flown an airplane. I've been in, on a lot of airplanes, but you know, you've flown 270. My daughter came home the other day and said, Dad, can you drive? She's four. Okay. Dad, can you drive any car? And I said, yeah, I can drive every car. You know, I, 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 val I was, my, my job was valet parker back in my teens at, at Caesars. You know, you learn how to drive every, I said, yeah, I can drive every, can you fly any airplane? Can you just get well, in and fly it? You know, skill wise, I'm, I'm comfortable. I could safely get a plane up and down again. Um, but there's legal requirements. So like, say, let's say you're an airline pilot and for the last 10 years, you've been flying the 737. And you get upgraded or side graded or whatever to a 757 and you've never flown it. You would have to go to school for that specific airplane. It's just about that plane. Right. And that school is anywhere from depending on the jet, you know, a month to three months. It just depends. But on let's that. take away. I get that. I mean, this, yeah, you, okay. you guys have all kinds of regulations. So the, which is good, uh, but, um, <laughs> but could you just, let's just say there are no regulations and every single plane is lined up on the runway. Could you just get in and figure it out? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable. Really? Get in and Jeez, figure it out. That's I might do a cool. little reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
but yeah, I don't want to take anything away from the, you know, that requirement of training, but yeah, if, of course, you know, if some crazy thing was happening, I'd get in and fly a plane and save a baby. I don't know. I would be yeah. happy. To, you know, I'd be you happy could, to do you that. You can do it. The principle is the same. It's just different speeds, different computers, yeah. different and everything. Yeah. Pull back, the houses get smaller, push forward, they get bigger, you know, <laughs> push the throttle up, you know. <laughs> Okay. Uh, most, if you could step out of your house right now and walk into the plane of your choice, what would it be? Ooh. And I just had to pick one. Didn't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, uh, it's just the, 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 uh, the one that you dream about still at night is sitting right there, right on the runway, ready to roll. Probably an F20. Oh, okay. It, it never got into production. Um, it's a lot like an F5. And has a great performance and it's very intriguing to me. It'll never be in production. I mean, you know, that probably high on my list. Hmm. <laughs> what, what do you love most about aviation? Ooh, definitely the freedom part. I mean, mm. it's, it's pretty cool not to be constrained by lines on a road and pavement. And, um, I never tire when I'm flying anything, a slow plane, a jet, 50,000 feet or 500 feet. I never tire of looking down, just watching the world go by. It, it, it's not like I'm doing it, you know, nonstop, but it's, uh, I can always look down and just dig, I dig it, you know, hmm. but definitely the freedom is probably the biggest answer. And, but learning all the different planes is a challenge. And I, I do enjoy that. I, I could go to school once a year for a new jet and I would, or, or a new airplane for that matter. I would love it. Like, there's there's a plane right now called a beach 18 and it's not that it wouldn't be that uncommon for me to fly that plane i just never have it's just no reason it's a twin engine radial engine uh old school it's kind of a harley of the skies from the 50s you know and it's a cool airplane i'm going to be flying it soon but i still kind of uh, look forward to that challenge of that airplane because I've just never flown it. And hmm. yeah, I've flown hundreds of hours and thousands of hours with radial engines, bigger, smaller, blah, 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 tail draggers and all that stuff. But it's different. And uh, that is, that's intriguing to me um, to go out and find the challenges, find out what you don't like about that ride and what you do like about it. That's all. This is something that I haven't seen in anybody's uh resume i've been to a lot of countries i think 105 <laughs> or something now with all the sailing you've been to yeah. every one but one so yeah. what's the one country you haven't <laughs> been to and how did you pull that off what what's what was the is and is that still going today are you still just traveling constantly or how, tell me about the travel sure as test flying was let me give you a little bit bigger answer when i when test flying was changing the market was changing you know i have to make a living just like you do and everybody else right mm -hmm. and um I pivoted a little bit into more of the um, corporate jets. And so I've, I've done some ferry flying where I would take, you know, customer bought a plane. It's in France. I got to go get it, bring it across the Atlantic. And and I enjoy that. I, I, I love crossing the Atlantic, especially stopping in Iceland. It never gets old. Um, but anyway. So, so it's, I mean, so you have deliveries of aircraft just like you do with sailboats. Yep. Same thing. That right? kind of work. Yep. Okay. Wow. Yep. Very similar. So that was a part of it. Um, and that's led to some things. And then I've also been hired to help uh, a new jet company. They're, they've made a new airplane. And there was this little jet I got involved with in 2008. 
And I, I literally, between the company and some of their customers, took that one little jet to over 90 countries. Jeez. And that was, yeah, because some of it was I was helping their sales team. Some of it was deliveries. Some of it was um, I got a new customer that had one, and I was his tour guide around the world. I had one customer that, like one year I took him all over Europe, for example. And then, uh, and then one year we did East Africa. And, and is this a little tail dragger or is this a no, jet? No, this or is what? a jet, it's, but it's a very okay. small jet. It's a, it's a so you good can land on shorter runways? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, um, but a really good little jet. I, I enjoy it. It's called an Eclipse and it was really fun to fly. And um, heck, I took him on a around the world trip in that little jet, you know, 700 mile legs at a time or whatever they were. And uh, seven weeks just surfing around the world with this little jet as our transport. <laughs> how do you... So how how do you cross how do you cross the Pacific when you can only go seven hundred miles? What what are you hitting on the way? Wait, yeah, give me that route. That's pretty. That'd be pretty sure. neat. I, I'll bang the route out for you in that little plane. We went from Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, to Montreal with a fuel stop in between. Um, Montreal had dinner at one of my favorite restaurants. Of course, you know, you gotta have the good yeah. food. Then we went uh, Montreal to Goose Bay, Canada. Uh, okay. Goose Bay to Narsarsawak, Greenland, landed in Narsarsawak, which is a another really cool spot. Um, Narsarsawak to Reykjavik, Iceland, overnighted there, did some trips and other things I recommended around there, some trekking. And then um, there to Wick, uh, Wick, I picked up some scotch for them and put that in the back of the plane. It's a scotch you can't get outside of uh well you can get it outside but not, not oh, anyway. you and i do need to become better friends <laughs> <laughs> we have a love of scotch <laughs> no problem um then we went wick to milan italy i want to take the his folks to this seafood restaurant there in milan that's spectacular then we went from uh milan to southern italy where did i stop in southern italy for fuel. Boy, I usually don't forget things like that. Anyway, and then we went to Crete, Heraklion. Mm. Heraklion to uh, Cairo. We got um, a couple days there, hung out with camels and went to the pyramids and all those things, plus Luxor. Flew down to Luxor, and that's a pretty cool place, the Valley of Kings. And we did, um, from there, I went to Riyadh. Um, his passenger got yelled at for using the royal bathroom. That was hilarious. And we went from Riyadh and we went down to Oman to Muscat, stayed there for two days. We went and sailed in the, uh, in the Gulf there, you mm. know, hung out with the pirates and, you know, all the bad guys. It was hilarious. Yeah. And just right there in Somalia. Yeah. There you go. Then we went to Pakistan. We didn't stay there. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Pakistan, but we didn't stay. We was fueled there to uh, Varanasi, India. So some of these are more than 700 FYI. Um, then we went from Varanasi to Mumbai, Mumbai to um, Calcutta, Calcutta to Chiang Mai, Thailand, Chiang Mai down to um, Phuket, and the airport's name is escaping me. Then we went to um, Singapore for two days. Then we did Bali because we were surfing at a lot of these stops, so we did Bali. We surfed Bali. And then we what did, went, what, wait, hold on, before you keep going, because this is awesome. What have you got in the plane? What's in there? Uh, just you got just surfboards. No, we were renting surfboards all okay. over these places. Okay. And, um, and we just had our just kit. changed clothes. 
Yeah, change of clothes. I had my technical stuff for, you know, this big of a trip for the airplane charts and nav stuff. Um, and are you the mechanic? No, no. I mean, I'll facilitate and assist, but I'm not the mechanic. Okay. Uh, we did have some things break and we did, you know, assist the process, you know, with other mechanics, but. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. I just no, that's all right. Um, <laughs> how big is the plane? Yeah. One more question. How, God, how big, Cause I, I'm used to, it's, I'm used to just flying super cubs in Alaska where, you know, yeah, you can't right. bring a handkerchief without pissing off the pilot. Remind me, I'm going to make a note. I'm going to send you a DVD about super cubs in, uh, Alaska. If you still have something that'll play a DVD, it's pretty cool. We made this um, film, about a fifty-minute film about bush flying. It was awesome. Cool. But, um, yeah. So then we we hung out in Bali. We surfed in Bali and all that in Indonesia. Uh, had great food. And then uh, we went from there into um, uh, Australia, where oh my goodness, I forgot about that. We we landed up in um, Darwin, and we're going to go to like their version of uh, a big state part, like. Yeah, we were going to go to their version up at Big State Park in the north part of Australia. And they said, don't drive at night. I'm like, no problem. And uh, we're driving down the highway in the middle of nowhere. And this poor little kangaroo, big kangaroo, actually jumps in <laughs> front of us, takes out the whole car, totaled. Yeah. And <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in Australia. And holy cow. Days. Yeah. It, it was <laughs> quite gray. That's an hour story at the minimum. But anyway, we, we, we walked out of there, hitchhiked this and that. It was nuts. And then we got to the east coast of um, Australia, surfed there for a couple days. Then we went to a place I've never been to, which was really cool. It's called Lord Howe Island. Yeah. And um, I've never been there. And it's got this little runway. They only allow a few hundred people on the island at a time. And we landed there. We found this guide. And we wanted to go hike up this volcanic uh, mountain because the surf was terrible just on that particular day. And he's like, oh, you can't do it. We're like, I'll just set the pace. And uh, if we're not making pace, you know, we'll just turn around. And we got up to the top of this thing where these birds, I think they migrate there periodically. I'd have to check one of my notebooks. I, I write everything down. So I have like 80, no, 40 volumes of notebooks with all oh, these wow. little notes. But anyway, this bird, we're up at the top of this thing. We're just taking a break, chilling out. And there was just hundreds of them. And they would fly by. And drop at your feet. <laughs> I have no idea to this day why. I've asked and I never got a straight answer. and never really followed up further than that. But they just dropped to your feet and and they were all doing it. And uh, it was just Whoa. wacky. I mean, it was totally wacky. And uh, so anyway, we left Lord Howe, went to New Zealand, did a bunch of stuff in New Zealand. And, uh, you know, a lot of trekking. Uh, we surfed a little bit. Well, it wasn't that good. Then we came back to Australia. We went out through uh, PNG, Papua New Guinea. Uh, that was just a fuel stop. Then we got into the Philippines, and we went to this island called um, Sagora, I believe it's pronounced. Wild. Awesome. Great mm. stop. There, there's another place I've never been to, and, and it's on the east side of the Philippines. They had three different surf breaks. They had this boat break we went out on. A great pier break. Is that Sargao? Sargao. Sar yeah. Yeah. Sar yeah we, had, we had the boat. I haven't been there either. Our boat went there. Uh, yeah, I have this kite surfing expedition thing, but uh, it, it went there, but I, I've never, I haven't been there either. Oh, you put that on your list. If you, It was fantastic. It was one of my favorite oh. stops. And um, it was just the people were great. It was some really nice surfing, which, you know, doesn't have to be a big wave. And yeah, you know, we're old, so let's just ride nice, safe waves, not big killer waves, you know. And uh, mm. 
So that that was a blast. And he's like, Peter, can you extend? Because you know I'm always on a tight schedule. And I go, I'll figure out a way to extend. We'll stay here a couple more days. <laughs> so then coming coming into your um, answer to your question, we left there Manila for a fuel stop. Taiwan, we surfed Taiwan. It was pretty good actually. And we hopped over to Okinawa, had some really good food, surfed Okinawa. Not bad. It wasn't just really up while we were there. Just while it wasn't building. And then we went up to um, Sapporo, Japan. Great food again. And then out of Sapporo over uh, Camp Chotkin to Petropavlovsk, Peter and Paul. Whoa. And um, we did a vo- volcano hike. Oh, no, no, no. That was a different trip. Sorry. Anyway, uh, Peter and Paul got a bite to eat and then into Anchorage and back to the U.S. So that's how you'd get across the Pacific in a so small up plane. So up, yeah. up through the Aleutians. Yeah. And, Fantastic. Uh, you know, hop over and back to the U.S., which you always feel good coming back home. <laughs> how how long was the trip in total? Seven weeks on that one. Does Why were you on such a tight schedule? What's that all about? Why don't you take more time? Uh, that's, I don't know. That's me living is that, in is a- that Is that the owner? No, me. It's always me oh. on the schedule side. I uh Okay. I uh I always have a lot going on, I guess. You know, the risk of sounding, okay. sounding self-aggrandizing. I'm just I got always constraints and this plane's waiting for me to get back and flight test, you know, my editors waiting for chapters from me and you know, my race plane needs work that I got to do or design, you know. It, it's just I'm, I'm always on a very flexible as uh well, it has to be. As you can be, but it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And so you talk about what, what's the kind of main thing that pays the bills these days? Is that is that the company that handles the corporate jets? Yeah. We I, I pivoted from flight test and, you know, the market just changed. It, it's just different uh, structure nowadays for contract flight testing. And so – it was a pretty natural pivot into the corporate flying because I've done test flying on corporate jets and I really like corporate jets. It's a different adventure. And we started acquiring customers and turning it into a full-time business of managing private jets for people. Okay. And it's, it's everything from staffing them, managing the maintenance, um, managing their trips, especially international trips, uh, hangars, insurance, you name it, the whole, the whole thing. And that's, that's PC aviators. That's that, is what pays my bills and allows me to write books and mm. still race airplanes and all that silly stuff. Scariest airplane or flight incident you've ever had, or uh, you've probably had many. I, I don't know. You don't, don't, don't leave it to one. If there's a bunch, I mean, there's a bunch I've, I've, you know, I've had over 23 or four engine failures in aircraft. Most of them gone very well back to runways I had a race jet that I had to put into the desert in 2016. And in fact, it's on YouTube. NBC was there filming. And that one was intense. I mean, again, when when things are happening, I don't want to sound macho because there's no place for that. But you you really, I get very focused. I get very kind of quiet. I'm thinking very rapidly and, you know, life preservation first, aircraft preservation next and all that stuff because they don't always go hand in hand. And I had to put that plane in the desert and it's totaled, but I've walked out of it and I've had some really great mentors that I give a lot of credit to for being able to walk away from that, you know, that crash. Were you the only one on board? Yeah. When we race, uh, there can't be anyone on board. Oh, you, oh, this was in a race. Yeah. This was during a race 2016. I was trying to 
uh, retain my championship from 2015. And um, it's a very complicated series of events, but um, I had to leave the course because I had a loud bang in this jet. And I was climbing vertically. I pulled the power about halfway back because, you know, until you know the problem, you don't want to go to idle and you don't want to leave your power full. So mid-range is a is a good thing to do. So I pulled the power to mid-range and I was zorching on up, going up to um, whatever altitude I could get and intercepting my best glide speed. And that plane's 160. And um, again, a lot happening at the same time. But um, I had uh, the side canopy, which is still baffling to me, had a big hole in it and a crack propagated through it. And this is bullet resistant uh I'll say plexiglass. It's not plexiglass, but right. really yeah. thick stuff. And and it was on the side though. If I hit a bird, it would have been in the front, right? So I had this had the lab bang, realized I had this crack in the side canopy. So what? You know, plenty flies just fine, except until I was on my way to get altitude. And, you know, altitude's life insurance, right? So I was getting altitude. And then my my pitch controls were jammed in the uh, trim and I couldn't budge them. So I'm like, oh, if I don't have that working well. It's time to bail out of this airplane. If you can't control it, you got to get out. So I was headed northbound away from all the crowds and stuff. I got that freed up. I did a functional check, control sweep, and all that stuff. I was up there floating around doing 160 at this point, and the plane was now flying fine. And then I looked down and um, continuing to evaluate what happened. The chase plane never found me. It would have been helpful for him to tell me, hey, you know, you're missing a part here. You got smoke there. He never found me. And, um, you know, things happen. And, uh, so I set up to come back down and recover to runway, um, eight. And I believe in treating, treating emergencies as normal as you can, depending on the type of emergency. So I came in overhead, I, was, I hit high key and I started to turn. And when I hit low keys where I got to add power and I, I went to add power and there was nothing. And I was looking at the gauges going, but the gauges look good. And they're like, yeah, well, Dumbass, better accept what's in front of you because it may look good, but it's not good. <laughs> and, right. You know, if I if I made a turn to the runway at that point, no way I would have made it. And so I had to turn 90 degrees away from the runway because I wouldn't have made the 180. I was losing too much altitude and speed and all that stuff. So then I aimed north and uh, I started now I was in, I got to shut down the plane mode and, and reduce fire risk, reduce flipping over risk get ready to get out of this thing when I touched down. And so um, I was lined up for this road and it was looking pretty good as dirt road, dirt, like a Jeep path, but it was flat. And I made my last mayday call. Um, I shut all the electrics off, shut the fuel off and started unlatching things so I could get out as quick as I could. You know, on, there's a secondary latch on the canopy and things like that. So um, as I'm getting down low, Right in front of me, between myself, well, the aircraft and the dirt road, was this three-foot wide, roughly concrete pillar. And I guess it's about two feet wide, about three feet tall, right in the height of the sagebrush in the desert. And I was like, I think that's bad if you hit that. That's in the bad category. Right. So, yeah, So because I, I want to keep the plane level when I was contacting the ground, so I minimized flipping it over. And um, so I just ruddered off to the left, very little. Um, popped the nose up, went into the desert on a 345 heading, touched down. And then the entire Nevada desert went into my face, I swear. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, you know, cause I have a mask on and I have my helmet and goggles and all that stuff. And I couldn't get over how much dust came into my face. It was terrible. 
<laughs> but I think it was a big factor in because um, a lot of fuel, like you could see it in the video, the, um, there was a belly feeder tank, so that just ruptured immediately, and jet fuel spraying all over the place, like a perfume bottle on steroids. Jeez. But I think that dust actually was um, suppressing any spark turning into a flame. I think it was a added value, and so I uh, I was just flying it instead of you know sliding on the belly because you don't want to put the gear down into a soft soft surface and uh, sliding to and it came I plowed through I literally made this really nice furrow was plow line for about eh, twelve hundred feet and then right at the end it just made a gentle right turn I popped the canopy off I got out and then there's rattlesnake marks and holes all over the ground like you got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's not cool. And um, and then I just figured I'd walk over to that dirt road because at least I'm not in the desert proper. And uh, and it was like a scene in a movie. I was just I had my helmet, my parachute, my gear. I'm just walking to this. And I was all by myself. There was no rescue folks for like five minutes. It took them a little longer to get out there. And uh, and yeah. And then I was like, hey, how about your out phone? Out in Nevada, Stan. I, yeah. you know, we, we did a big search and rescue for a, a very good friend who disappeared out there last year uh, paragliding. And I know that dust you're talking about. Oh. It is unbelievable. It's a foot and a half deep. And it's just, yep. oh, man, it gets everywhere. Um, wow. I'm glad that one ended up okay. Have you had yeah. any other – there have been times you've been in an airplane when you've thought, yep, this is it. Not going to no, get to the I, ground. I, I never – I don't allow that to enter my head. It's um, we had a really bad fire on this uh, vintage airplane, really large vintage airplane, a few years ago, and it was bad. the uh, The entire and this is a big airplane, ninety foot wingspan. The entire uh, cabin cockpit was full of smoke. Smoke and lucky in that plane, the side windows can open in the cockpit. And I had a couple guests on the plane. And I had them up breathing that fresh air because it was that bad. And the flame was coming out of this massive junction box, bigger than your, your home's circuit breaker box. And I was just, you know, I, I, it was two pilot airplane. So I got out of my seat and he was doing a great job flying the plane. I'm like, go towards that water. Cause if this goes bad, we're going to go land in that water. You know, if that flame doesn't reduce, it's just going to get worse. And then aluminum doesn't do well with flames and then parts start to fail and failing parts in altitude don't get along too well. So I was like, go towards that water. And if we have to, we'll ditch in the water near the shoreline and get out. And, um, so I, I shut off all the electrical power and I start pulling every single circuit breaker. There's about eh, 110 circuit breakers in that plane, trying to find out what the electrical fire source was. And then I saw the flames were, they were reducing and then they stopped and then we did a bunch of emergency stuff to get the gear down and pump down. And, and then we landed without our power on and um, back at a runway. And it all went really well. One guy got um, smoke inhalation really bad. And uh, um, so we had to take him in for oxygen. But other than that, plane was back flying a few months later. But uh, that one was mm. a pretty intense fire. It was, it was bad. What happened in Pakistan? You said you got a lot of friends in Pakistan, but you had some gunpoint stuff. And- well, I, I was just sharing the story. I forgot about the story. And it's it's a really good one because it, it, it deals with the empathy of humans. And finally, again, finding where that Venn diagram overlaps with very different people and very different worlds. And it was four in the morning and, and I had a driver and we're driving through Pakistan. We went through this one section that has roadblocks. And we knew that and we get pulled, you know, we stopped at the roadblock. 
you know, the scene is just right out of Hollywood, right? You know, everybody's pointing guns at the car and they're all acting angry. And I'm like, why are you so angry? I'll give you a chocolate bar, you know? So <laughs> they pull the driver out and they took, they took him away. And I'm like, huh, that's probably unfavorable, you know? So I get out of the car and they're telling me to get back in the car and they speak about eight words of English. And my Urdu is about less than that. And, and so I'm trying to do hand gestures, and so I'm hit, hanging out inside the back seat of the car, just chilling. And I don't know where I came up with this idea, and uh, and it subsequently I've used it ever since in several <laughs> heightened experiences. <laughs> I had one of these little Sony, you know, cameras, you know, the little little ones. I pulled it out, and I was making the gesture, kind of take a picture. And he's like looking at me like I'm nuts, you know. He's like. <laughs> Who, why does this cook want to take a picture, you know? And he's being all mean and angry. And I'm like, no, no, I want to get a picture with you. So, you know, through sign language and everything else, I'm taking a selfie with him, the guy with the most stripes on his arm. And he's like, okay, okay. And we take a picture. And then I asked him if I could hold his rifle while we take a picture. He's like, okay. So he, I'm holding his <laughs> rifle. He's taking a picture of me while I hold the rifle. You know, this very surreal moment, and he actually cracked a smile. And then he had one of his subordinates come over and take a picture of he and I together holding these rifles. Fantastic. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, okay, you guys can leave. I'm like, oh, where's my driver? Oh, he'll be back. He'll be back. It's fine. You know, and his English actually proved slightly as he uh, <laughs> de-escalated. <laughs> I learned that uh, sailing around the world, we were places that were, you know, potentially a pirate area, you know, Malacca Straits kind of thing. I, yeah. I learned we always had cigarettes and a Polaroid. Yep. Those were the two things that, you know, you know, A, you know, don't get the guns out, invite them on board, offer them some cigarettes and start taking pictures. And a Polaroid yep. was, you know, now you could just do it digitally. But back then that was, that was terrific because you could yep. literally go think and then they, you know, show yeah, them. That, and, yeah, <laughs> it just diffused everything. That yeah, was, no, it know, couldn't be, I couldn't agree more. Coca-Cola goes a long way and yep. I don't drink soda. The other one is newspapers. If you give them a current yeah. newspaper, they love it. Totally. Magazines. Yeah. Absolutely. Magazines, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> magazines that have scantily clad women, some yeah, parts so, of the world tend yeah, to work Sears pretty catalog, well. Yeah. Sears catalog will work for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, too much. Um, any other scary, you know, when you think back, it's a long career in the air. Uh, I don't know why I'm centering on scary. It just seems like... <laughs> You know, uh, with all the racing and all the test flying, you know, there must, there must've been some moments. Well, I mean like 2011, I lost my engine racing, but that was easy. I knew the engine failed. I came off the track, got some altitude. I recovered to runway, um, one, four. It's, I don't know. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm being macho, but it, it wasn't scary. I just had a job to do. I had gates I had to pass so that the job came out successfully. And I had mm. to pass those gates. You know, I needed this much altitude to make runway one four. Don't turn this way, turn that way. You know, you just, you know, training and rehearsal and stuff. Um, it has an intensity to it. And I'm always more concerned about my team. You know, my team's awesome. You know, uh, people are very close to me and um, all volunteers. It's already too expensive to race, you know, and uh, – mm. And I know they're nervous when they see and hear a mayday called because they have radios for lots of reasons. But, you know, great outcome. And other times like that, 
I think weather can be one of those moments that really get you the hair in the back of your neck going because mm. I had one that was pretty intense. I was taking one of those small jets, the Eclipse. Um, I was delivering it in England. Uh, I never cut fuel tight, never. That's just a fool's errand. And um, I left Reykjavik on this leg going to Wick, Scotland, really up north. And um, I went missed approach because the weather was bad. And I start climbing out, and I said uh, my alternate was Aberdeen. They have an ILS there, which gets you down to really low weather conditions. And um, I said, I'll, I'll go to Aberdeen. So I turned south to go to Aberdeen, and plenty of fuel for that, no problem. And I'm, I don't know, it seemed like hours, but it was probably 12 minutes going towards Aberdeen south. And he said, Aberdeen just shut down. I was like, well, that's unfortunate. And I was like, so what's my closest ILS? That is still open weather-wise. And they had me go to the Orkney Islands. I'm like, oh boy, mm. islands and weather, not good. Now mm. I'm getting tight on fuel. And the Orkneys are north. And sure. I was going south. And I'm like, this is bad. But this is why you have reserve fuel. I mean, it's there to use if you have to. And and so I was <laughs> I was coming into the Orkneys. And it was blowing like 35 knots and rain and all that nasty stuff. And uh and they're like, hey, you're going to be number two. There's this life flight, you know, someone with a medical thing inbound. I go, hey, that's great. I promise I won't get in the way. You could turn me early onto that ILS, but I'm landing like right now. I'm critical fuel. And like, okay, can you keep your speed up? Like whatever you need, but I'm landing right now and I will not get in the way of the life flight. And uh, so they did. Turn me early. And the wind was so much that the plane was uh, offset about 30 degrees to the right. So you're looking at the quarter view window. And uh, rolled out, you know, uneventful. But the weather, I think, is intense. And I, I mm. was really tight on fuel. I was landing there no matter what. Let's put it that way. Right. And it worked is, out fine. Is, is that that was part of the, the world tour that you took us through earlier. Is is the flying part of, of something like, you know, when you're in a jet and, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not flying in Alaska right on the deck, you know, looking at sure. the moose, you're, you're, you're up tall. Is it, is that still exciting for you? It, you know, I wouldn't imagine it matches the racing and stuff, or is that, is it, or, or is the beauty of that kind of a trip really all the places you get to go? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a great question because absolutely racing is one type of flying. It's really intense. You have eight planes with you feet apart, bad things can happen. You're asking the most out of an airplane. It's super an intensity. You know, you get out of the plane after racing. You gotta, you gotta slow down back to what the world is moving at, right? And I know you get that. You know, and if I take a, you know, beautiful Falcon over to Oman, which I just did. I just got back from there a few weeks ago. It's different challenges. The flying, you know, it's a ton of straight level flying. I personally enjoy it. It's very opposite to use the racing example, but mm. I know I'm gonna get to another adventure in this case i played on the i played golf which i'm very bad at but i like it on this golf course where you could not putt on the greens it was impossible there was no putting greens but there was a hole there it was hilarious but you know it's another <laughs> tiny little paragraph right. of an adventure right you know sure you know there's not a golf course that bad here in the u.s period and uh <laughs> it was hilarious and uh, we laughed about it my, my dutiful pilot that went with me but um so yeah, it's absolutely different. It's not your hair on fire, but it's very enjoyable to me. And those chip trips, the international trips in a, a large corporate plane, they're full of challenges, but they're different challenges. 
there's permits, there's landing rights, there's all kinds of stuff. And now throw in COVID, which is a whole nother layer of enjoyment. And that makes mm. it even more, more difficult and different, you know. I, uh, w- we didn't get to hear what country haven't you been to? There's one. Oh yeah. Madagascar. Oh, you got to go there. I know. That's a place I've spent a lot of time and Madagascar is pretty amazing. We've been watching all the, uh, the cartoon films with my four-year-old the last few <laughs> nights too. Uh, yeah. Gotta love, gotta love King Julian. Um, yeah, that's a crazy place. You'd, yeah, you'd I, love it. Absolutely want to. No it's reason. built for adventure. Just, yeah, exactly. I've heard great things about it. Like you're another person telling me, you know, with a great background. It's wild. You're really going, I mean, it's very, very, very poor. Uh, I think it's fourth poorest in the world or something, but it's, you know, the flora and fauna there are mind boggling. It's it's very unique. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) What, uh, what happened in Guatemala? Um, well, I got involved with a group that is informal and, um, it's not some large organization. It was just, Hey, let's go help some people that need help. And, um, there, there are three orphanages down there that we decided, um, to make better for them. And the one orphanage was they, their kids get stolen. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. And so we got some friends to help with that whole security thing that are very well experienced in that and well-trained in that. And then, um, the big thing was to put in a cement floor. So we did that because that, stopped a pathway for the snatching to occur. And Good then, God, um, they dig? They come up through yeah, the floors? They come up Jeez. underneath the wall through the dirt and um, if the windows are protected. And we did that. Holy cow. And, uh, so we just helped these orphans. Um, and they it's been really successful. Um, we helped them with school supplies and other technology. Obviously, the security was first and foremost. We did several trips down there. And um, then COVID happened. So a lot of the doctors and others weren't comfortable going there during COVID. I was like, well, give me a plane to take. I'll head down and we'll see what, see what's up. But we've had favorable correspondence with them even during COVID that all of the measures we, we applied have been working now for several years. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the teach a kid to fish story. They get to eat for life. Right. And it was kind of that approach. We don't want to just show mm. them, give them, give them things. We want to make them better. Uh, contributors to the community and it's right been, it's been really rewarding and uh is has most of your philanthropic work been oriented around kids um a little bit you know I, I i have this phrase i've used for years kids don't have a choice you know all of us adults have a choice right we can mm. do good do bad whatever and kids are just born and they don't have a choice they're just there and so yeah plus you know raised by a single mom that that whole type of um outlook definitely has some influence on me so you know a fair amount with that fair amount with our veterans and um and again people that don't have the choice people that were born with a genetic um, issue we help with an organization here in park city called national ability center and um we donate it we call it fighter pilot for a day we take them up in a military fighter it's just an auction item that raises a, a ton of money for their for their uh, group. And it's really terrific to see how well organized that NAC is and, you know, helping these people there. Again, they don't have a choice, right? Mm. They're just born and uh, we have choices. You and I have choices. Um, the kids don't. So. Yeah. Good for like you, that. man. That's, that's awesome. 
I was kind of caught off guard there when you said Madagascar, and I just kind of, I just kind of ate that. <laughs> but that means you've been to places, you know, North Korea, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Syria. Uh, yeah. Have you have you been into a lot? Have you a lot of the countries you've been in? Have they been in you know active conflict times or? Yeah, um, all kinds of reasons. Yeah, uh, North Korea was a diplomatic deal that I was mm. I was pilot for and um, a couple different times it's funny you keyed in on that because when people hear that little factoid they ask like well what about Ukraine I'm like well that that's easy I mean right know? yeah yeah but yeah you know Cuba North Korea well, Cuba now is semi-open but uh yeah you know just doing different tasks and jobs and lived in Turkey for a while lived in South America for a while and so yeah What's your what's the favorite place you've lived or been? Um if I if I did it by kind of like topic or region, uh, huge Italy proponent. Love Italy. Love the people. You love, love food. food. Yeah. Mm. I'm a foodie. Um yeah. and, and I love the history there. But the people are awesome, right? Yeah. And I think when there's awesome people in a location, there's usually awesome food. Iceland's another one. That's another one I'm never tired of going uh, mm. to Iceland. Great food, you know, whole different scene, uh, really nice people, um, welcoming. Um, Thailand, and the same thing, you know. Yeah, hiking in Thailand's awesome, and doing a jungle tour on my friend's elephant is awesome. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the food and the people, right? They're, mm. And it's different. The one common thing among food is everyone has their version of a burrito, some rolled up flour thing with food stuff in it. Every single place sure some form of a flower rolled up thing with food in it right and uh yeah but yeah i really really like thailand a lot i've had a lot of great trips there um yeah. is there a place you've been that if you had to go back you'd go not that excited about it yeah oh yeah <laughs> drc <laughs> oh yep okay uh, that wasn't fun um I was in Somalia I had a few different times, you know, young boys in horrible situations pointing an AK-47 at me. Not yeah. cool. Because they yeah. don't have a value. Sure. They're in a horrible deal. Life means nothing. Life yeah, means it, nothing. And, it, and if they make it to 18, they're like, wow, I'm old. And yeah. That's Liberia was, was like that. Oh, God, yeah, I yeah, went yeah, into port thing. there to get fuel in Liberia. And I just, it was, you know, there are, a lot of countries, Madagascar is a perfect example of this, you know, that are really poor. Yeah. And you just, you know, the the people, the community, the friendliness, it just blows your mind. And there are other places that are really poor that are just scary, in my experience, right. just right. terrifying. And Liberia yeah. was one of them. Yeah. And there's several African countries that are really tough. Um, yeah. West Africa is full of some sketch <laughs> yeah yeah it's a tough and, uh, place i was in this ebola vi village for this experience and uh i didn't go there intentionally <laughs> but we we're trying to help out a little bit and oh it's horrible you know and then and then there's bad guys there on top of it so you got this horrible disease yeah. infested area and then there's bad guys you know it's like a lot of corruption ah uh, it's just it's sad i wanted to ask you about this discovery channel um the productions you've been doing there, the dangerous flight series. I don't know this one. What's this about? Well, thanks for asking. Cause that was super fun. I, I almost didn't do it. 
Um, but the, the whole premise is a broker sells an airplane to somebody in, say, the Philippines, and the plane's in Florida. And then Discovery Channel followed us around and did interviews with us and the goings-on and the happenings and the risks. And the planes were, you know, smaller. They weren't tiny, but they also weren't a corporate jet. Um, so we had to stop a fair amount and um, um, have the adventure on the ground too, so to speak. And so they would, each episode was following two different uh, trips. And huh. it was great. It was really good. It was doing well. And then we had a tragedy, and that's why it got uh, canceled. We had a director die. And um, he in crashed. Yeah. He crashed in Kenya um, after I completed a four-week trip with them. And I left, and he wanted to fly around Mount Kenya, around this spot called Dead Man's Curve. And I told him, do not go there. And I said, I won't go there, and I'm not taking you there. And I was... You know, it's about a 24-hour trip home. So I, I went down to Nairobi, flew to, I think, Amsterdam, and then Amsterdam to Salt Lake, and finally get home. I was literally driving up the mountain, going home. Phone rang with his far number, and I knew what happened. I knew before I picked up the phone. And sure enough, John died, and he's a great guy, great, great shooter, um, you know, film shooter. And Why was this spot, the dangerous whatever, what, well, what was it called? It's called Dead Man's Curve, but um, it's on the okay. uh, east side, and there's um, – a big draw in there. Like this is a big deal for paragliding because if there's a big cold draw, air draw, it's always there. It's almost always there. And that down current can get up to 60 miles an hour easily. And uh, in some cases more, depending on where in the world you are. And this one has a really bad current that draws you down because of that cold sinking air that goes mm. deep into this, uh, you know, volcano that goes up to 18,000 feet. And um, sure enough, they crash within, you know, feet of where I said, don't go. Cause he wanted the shot. Wow. He was a consummate, you know, cinematographer and he was great at his craft and, uh, found this local guy that took him up in a small plane and both of them were killed instantly. It was a real shame. And, wow. and that's why we didn't continue with the next season. And, uh, but it was, it was, um, it was a great little run though. I can tell you that. And, and the people love it. They still air it. They still play it around the world. And, uh, you know, we get, questioned are they going to do it again and i think discovery channel got a little you know gun shy right have has there been a lot of uh tragedy in your career given what you do you lost a lot of friends along the way yeah unfortunately i've i've lost a lot of friends um test flying has some hazards in it uh racing does and then some of the international trips just people you know bad bad turn of events bad luck and um they don't they don't go home yeah, huh. it's unfortunate. Do you chalk up your own survival to any kind of a approach more than luck? I mean, I, there's the obvious stuff, but I'm looking for something more. You know, um, I don't know. You have a you have a playbook. Yeah, you know, listen. You know, listen to your inner self. Anything that just. <laughs> I do. I I I never allow outside or external pressures to affect my decisions. And I think a lot of people that have had bad outcomes, they didn't realize they were pressuring themselves from the external mm -hmm. forces. And, you know, we call it get homeitis. That's a classic um, weather. Oh, they'll be fine. I've done this before. Um, uh, and then some of it is just not enough 
planning or training in a certain area and um, you know treat it as carefully as they should in cases and then of course bad luck so I, I, I definitely plan I've taken some single engine planes across the Atlantic hopping across the different islands and everything and um, and I get done with them like god that was a bad idea why did I do that you know going across the Atlantic at 5,000 feet um, and but I'm very conservative about the weather I mean, I was a professor of meteorology and I still don't think I know enough about weather. And I, I'm just uh, very conservative in lesser capable planes in certain environments. You know, the satellite mm. picture is not good. I'm not going. See ya. And that, mm. That's when the schedule does not bother me at all. Because mm. I promise I don't want to hang out in Kujuak, Canada, eating, you know, the same food every single day, which I've done. <laughs> right. But, but that uh, is what gets the bush pilots in Alaska. It's, you know, it's usually when they're flying for the lodges or the fishermen or, you know, or something and there, and there's pressure, you know, there's, there's, there's pressure to fly in the weather. And they got, they got the bad weather scenario. They got the pressure. They got planes that are, you know, they're not super well equipped. I've, I've flown a bunch up there and hmm. they can only do certain things. Bottom line. How do you, how do you think about, you know, six months Two years, five years. Are you a real goal-oriented guy? Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. Do you how how do you uh, you've had all this adventure? How, what do you where do you go from here? The next immediate goals are definitely uh, part of it's the books. I want to. I'm going to interrupt the the uh, series with a book about my flying stuff and things related to the flying stories, like some of them we're talking about. It's mostly done, but I've had it transcribe my notebooks, and that is a daunting task. I now have a solution for that. So maybe by January, I'll be able to release that uh, third book, but not it's not a part of the series. It's just the flying adventures in my first 30 years of flying. So th those are some immediate goals. I really want to see the, the relevant um, series, at least the relevant, the book, uh, turn into a movie. Mm. I don't know anything about it. I, uh, I'm trying to learn. And I'm trying to find the people to get some mentoring from. It's been hard. We wrote the screenplay, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is this is awesome!" I'm like, "Doesn't anybody want this?" <laughs> mm, that's tricky. It's all yeah. who you know. Yeah. The, the uh, can can I just ask a way too direct question? Has it been quite yeah. a successful book, Relentless? Yeah. And is the new Cold War, which was just released, is that part of that series? Is that the second one? Yeah. So the series is the title of the first book, and that's relevant. And relevant is a term I think that's relevant <laughs> mm. to a lot of people and professions. But anyway, so relevant is the series. And the second book in the series is called The New Cold War. But it is a standalone story. It'll make references to the first book. But you can pick it up and just read the second book. And, you, okay. and, and it will be a story in and of itself. And that's um, also military fiction? Yeah. It's a spy thriller. It's a CIA asset um, dealing – so a, a, a lot of my book is about the metaphysical side of the world. If I can get people to think a little differently, maybe, or just challenge things. And I don't mean challenge like, you know, like maybe your daughter at four years old does. Like, why do you want me to do that, dad? You know, right. I don't mean that way. But I mean, like, <laughs> you know, genuine asking questions why instead of just Googling stuff and listening to the media, maybe find someone that actually lived there with success and experience and learn from them about a certain region, Somalia, right? Or something mm -hmm. like that. And um, so in the narrative in both of these books, I really pose a lot of philosophical questions, a lot of why questions, 
historical references. So, you know, everyone right now wants to rewrite history. And I get it. It's, it's all cool. But however, there are things that happened in this world. And you can't look at it from our perspective in 2021. No. And so to Definitely. gain the right perspective and or the time perspective is super hard. It's extremely hard. And mm. to really understand uh, the perspective that was going on in, you know, 1855, in 1772, you know, blah, blah, blah. And really understand why uh, did someone rally people around a city in the Middle East? And is it good? Is it bad? Is it different? And is it good and bad from 2021 perspective? Or was it good and bad in, you know, 700 AD or whatever the case may be? Um, just use one example, but really have that understanding. I mean, you don't have to become this scholar in history, but maybe just a little bit more um, common ground among different cultures and people. Mm. And not just, you know, the people live at the end of the runway. They hate airplanes no matter what. Well, why at the end of the runway, folks? You know, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason your house is 20% under value compared to the rest of the county, you know, because right. it's at the end of the runway. And now you hate yeah. airplanes. Well, maybe go meet a pilot and really talk about what's going on there. Right. And, um, you know, uh, so th throughout those two books, even though it's a, a story about a CIA asset and um, what he does, for example, in the new Cold War, we're really, I, I, I'm challenging the whole quantum computing that's emerging because we've had times, the, in my opinion, the last big topic we had to deal with was when the world started getting nuclear weapons. And, and we had to deal with it philosophically because a weapon could take out an entire country in some cases. And, and I'm, I'm not here to get on a platform about good, bad, or indifferent, but, um, but the world had to tackle that philosophically. And they did. And, and of course, people made mistakes. It's just we're humans. And the idea is that the mistakes can't be catastrophic. Make some mistakes, learn from it, own it. I know not everybody owns them, but mm. when quantum computers, you know, if we had a proper quantum computer, I mean, full up running with the proper bridging to allow humans to interface with it, it may, it could, it is possible that it would be able to make a cure for cancer in seconds or hours. And we don't know. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, but what they can do is unbelievable. The potential for what they can do is unbelievable. However, there's the downside. And everything we use, our phones, our computers, our banking, our credit cards, is all based on integer security measures. A quantum computer will hack that in a second. Mm. And the entire world's security will be gone. Absolutely gone. And as a world... You know, because we're citizens of the world. We're not citizens of the U.S. We live in the U.S., but we're citizens of the world. And we're not philosophically ready to answer that question or that complete change in our civilization where nothing is secure. Because there's a lot mm. of bad guys out there. There are a sure. lot of bad guys out there. People are like, oh, people want to do the right thing. I'll take you on a few trips and we'll go meet the people that are the bad guys because they mm -hmm. exist. They just mm -hmm. do. And, you know... It's human nature to try and get things easier for some people. It's human nature to progress towards a um, a bit of a chaos. You know, entropy is a reason in science. There, there, there's a reason we have entropy existing. The term entropy. And so, anyway, long story, a little bit on my soapbox, but 
we broach the topic of quantum physics and quantum computers in the second book. It's part of the plot. Mm. And uh, I had some, I say we, because I had some really good advisors on quantum physics and quantum development and, uh, and other good advisors too. But it sounds very bond tenant. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Fantastic. I, I can't, yeah. can't wait to catch up on them. Was there a need in you to write a book? Was this something that was just brewing all along or because writing books is hard. It's really hard. As you know, um, it's hard. It was harder than I thought. I, I, I enjoy the creative process doing the, the filming for TV. I made a, a documentary and it was terrible it was absolutely horrible but i learned a ton from it and then i made some good documentaries the the bush flying i referenced in alaska kind of made it for fun but it it was very professionally done good cinematography good production value it was great and i really enjoyed that so the books were just another creative extension you know i I wanted to use the right half of my brain a little bit more you know getting a book done in 12 months was hard for me and I got it done. It's not perfect, but I'm, you know, I really like it. And they're doing well to answer your aforementioned yeah, question. Yeah, right. So, you know, they're doing well, and um, I hope they continue to do well because you don't make any money from it. I, I, I just want to go and talk to authors that are doing this for a living. I'm like, holy cow, you yeah. just don't make any money. But the sales are important because it creates the momentum for other things to happen, and so mm-hmm. the numbers are important. Like my brother, you know, I just shame him into, I'm like, John, go buy the book. And, uh, and you know, my spouse and my friends, like you guys have to buy the book. I'll give you the money for it, but it's the number game, right? It's not the, right. uh, it's not the earnings, you know, it's It's a, it's a trip. It's a weird world too. And you know, I, my book is not something that you would even put on Amazon. It's because it's, it's a very niche thing. You know, if you're a paraglider in the world, you know about the book and it's, that's, what's terrific about it. It was like our kite surfing business. If you were a kite surfer, you knew about the business because it's pretty easy to reach all those people, Yeah. you know, but when you're writing a spy thriller, you want to sell it to the masses, you know, it's, it's a trip because it's a, it is a numbers game, like you said. And, you know, a New York Times bestseller is 10,000 books. It's not that many copies. And so no. I'm with you. How do these people, it's a, yeah, it's a tough game to make a lot of money, to make money in period or, it, you know, yeah, make it's really a lot of money. And, you know, I, I've been stumbling and I've been getting help to get the message out there and sell the book. And I'm really happy with it, with the amount of people supporting. I'm super happy and thankful. And hopefully that plays into the third book, you know, and getting that continuing the momentum you know (laughs) peter good for you well uh what a joy it is to hear about a fraction a tiny tiny snippet of your history and your adventuring and your love of scotch which we'll have to take (laughs) up at some point and congratulations on writing relentless and the new cold war and uh, those of you listening, go out and grab it, and I'll have all the links up in the show notes for the books and your videos. I'll put on that. I think I've seen the Bush Plane documentary you're talking about, but we'll, yeah. uh, we'll have to put up some links to that as well. I've seen sure. all those up in Alaska. I'm an Alaska freak. <laughs> and uh, But thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your time and sharing some of these stories. We'll have to do a part two here at some point. Well, Gavin, thanks for the time. I super appreciate it eager to do part two. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. 
You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. You should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.